0: I think storytelling is a critical tool for evolution, especially for evolving consciously. If the parts of us that have choice about how to evolve and how to participate and how we want to evolve our humanity, stories are really important.
1: I believe that your personal life and your professional life are inherently linked. And when you do the work on both sides, you can become the most successful version of yourself. This is a place where wisdom meets leadership, where success meets spirituality. Welcome to Do The Work with Denise Love Hewitt. I am here with the exquisite Kate Van Devender, and she is a screenwriter, showrunner, and she's just launched a studio called Sand Mirror Studio, which is a new methodology that she created to help creatives tap into themselves and their intuition and their purpose in a more meaningful way. But Kate is someone who is just has a deep, deep zest and curiosity for life that you feel in her work, not only in the process, but in how she speaks about it. It is so joyful to be in her presence and to spend time with her, so I'm just so excited for you guys to meet her today.
0: Thank you so much. This is awesome to be here. Thanks for
1: being here. So before we get into your new venture, I would really just love you to take us through your road in Hollywood, which led to this epiphany and discovery of what your next sort of chapter should be.
0: Sure. I um I moved to from New York. I'm from New Mexico originally. Moved to from New York after being an actress and a mime and uh, an editor in New York. A mime? A mime. It was a professional mime.
1: Like in theaters or on the street?
0: No, not on the street. We considered ourselves very above that. (laughs) We only performed in theaters. We had two shows, one for adults, one for kids. Yeah, it was actually how I learned storytelling. I learned to tell stories without words, which Mm. was extremely difficult because if you, you know, the audience is tracking your movement, so if you mess up a a line… It's… they don't know what you're doing. So right. it, was, it was an awesome way to learn. It was really Very difficult. intentional.
1: And we're going to plant the seed now. We'll talk about it later. But it obviously somehow informs what you're doing now.
0: Yes. I got, I, th- I think that was my first introduction into physical storytelling and the importance of, of bringing ideas into physical form and, you know, shapes and space. Um, so anyway, my mime career was short <laughs> and uh, I moved to L.A. I moved here to be an actress. First thing I did was I made a web series back when web series were just starting to come out and it was about an actress named Kate (laughs) and it went viral. I ended up getting really good representation, some contracts, and I turned into a writer. I was very sought after as a writer more than an actress. And so I made my way up in comedy, I wrote on some sitcoms. And I reached a point where uh, I felt like I was seeing behind the scenes of how things get made in Hollywood and it was unbearably toxic.
1: <laughs> you said this thing to me once around the language that we use in Hollywood and it's very like sort of masculine leaning. Can you just walk us through sort of like some of those references and sort of like the, the methodology that you realize it's it's it skews very much one way and it should be with everything should be balanced.
0: Yeah. I, I started to notice in the writers room in particular when we are working on a script we use language like… We beat out the story and we find the punchline and we do it until it kills and we break a story and we do a vomit draft. So it's like really violent language to describe the creative process. And it just got me thinking like, why are we defining creation in terms of destruction? Mm. Doesn't make any sense. It feels, that is what it feels like to be in a comedy writer's room or a lot of writers room, it feels like a war. And so I started to think, what if? What would the product look like if we actually supported the creative process with create- creation, <laughs> with what you would need to actually create things? And so I left the writer's room and I started to investigate where inspiration comes from, what creativity is, because I started to think that, you know, so much of what people get stuck on is they don't actually know how inspiration comes into the brain. They don't know mm-hmm. how it works. And I thought that's just horribly inefficient. If we, if there was a way to discover how inspiration happens, then we could replicate it all the time and it wouldn't be such a pain to make right. anything. Because
1: when I think of creativity, I think that it can't be… like I think there's a sense of urgency in our culture around production and creativity. And it's hard for me because I'm like, you know, creativity it comes when it comes. Like when I give a keynote talk, it's like I write it and sometimes you know, it's not done until it's done. It's like no matter how much I want it to be done, it's not done um, until the one thing comes into my brain or I read the thing and then it goes in the product and then all of a sudden the keynote's finalized, right? And so in the process of understanding how inspiration comes and works, can you walk us through sort of what you learned? Yeah,
0: it's really interesting. Okay, so there's two ways, there's two important things to know. One is creativity um, is inspiration And paired with, I would call it sort of a morphogenetic field of what that creation wants to be. And that's sort of… Can you explain for us that may not know what a morphogenetic field is? (laughs) Yes. Ah. (laughs) So a morphogenetic field is something that is um, researched both in in science and in psychology and spirituality. And Mm -hmm. on the science end, the scientists are interested in, you know, we all… Are created from one cell. We all start with one cell, and that cell multiplies and multiplies and multiplies. And eventually those cells somehow know that some of them are gonna be an arm, some of them are gonna be an eye, some of them are gonna be a brain, even though they all come from a single cell. So there's sort of this question of like, how do cells know what part of the human architecture they're going to be? On the psychological spiritual side, when we get an idea, um, there is a sense that there's sort of like a holographic blueprint in your brain. You can kind of like sort of feel about, feel into what the idea wants to be and then you start manifesting and sort of filling in the the blueprint of what that idea is. So both of those things are based on something that's called a morphogenetic field. And in science there's a lot of debate around it because we don't have the instruments to detect something like that. It's, it's a highly sensitive thing. But on the creative side, creatives are highly sensitive. So if you speak to someone who's had an idea or had a had a, you know trying to birth a creation they know exactly what you're talking about right. so that's what a morphogenetic field is it's something that holds space as the idea and brings reality into it in a particular way until that entire idea is manifested mm. so the a creation is inspiration and a morphogenetic field that then becomes realized by reality now the th- the trick is that inspiration is actually much more accessible than most people think. And one person that did a lot of research on this is Carl Jung, who's one of the forefathers of psychology. And what Jung discovered, which is so helpful, is that our brains process a few different kinds of information. We process perceptions, we process emotions, we process sensations and thoughts. And when all four of those things are aligned with each other, Something else happens in the brain, which is your inspiration center opens. Mm. So,
1: could you repeat that again? Yeah. So we can all take it in.
0: So, our brains process thoughts, feelings, sensations, and perceptions. So, you've got all this data coming into your brain what you're feeling, what you're sensing, what you're thinking, what you're just everything around you, inside and outside. So, as you're processing this information, Some of those things are in conflict with each other, right? Like Mm -hmm. you're having a thought like I want to do this, but you're having a feeling of fear. Don't do this. So those two things are against each other. They're not aligned. And this creates kind of a traffic jam in the brain. And in those situations it's the part where… part of your brain where inspiration comes in doesn't open. It's like a flower that only opens in certain circumstances. Mm -hmm. Now your brain can become aligned in fear. Or it beca- can become aligned in a love state. So, like for example, if you were being, you know, chased by a hungry wolf, then you would see the wolf. That would be your perception. You would feel afraid. Like I need to run. Your body would be giving you all sorts of signals. Like yes, we need to run. And so all your all the data in your brain becomes aligned and focused into one thing. And suddenly your in, your your instinct opens up. Right, run! I'm going to save myself. Your inspiration flower. Exactly. Yes. So that happens often when we have a deadline. That's that fear state coming in. Oh, interesting. Yeah.
1: So that's what we have used is like an adrenaline, productivity focused way of creating inspiration. Yes. So I think, so for me, the recipe that I use, which is my terminology, but not different than Carl (laughs) Jung's, is stillness, new stimuli, and like space. So like for me, when I'm traveling, I'm often very inspired largely because it's quiet, I have new stimuli, and I have the breath and luxury of time and space.
0: Yes. What you're doing is great because you have recognized that you're actually doing creativity in a more sustainable way. So if you're... You heard it here if first. <laughs> if you are a person who forces yourself into creativity by... You know, depending on a deadline to run into right. and put yourself in a crisis state, that's ultimately not sustainable because it, you're going to start to pair like anytime I need to create something, I need to suffer.
1: Well, it's a lot of people. It's a lot of artists it's a who lot of equate people. that pain equals creativity. Yeah. And they feel like if they are happy or well, then they won't be able to be as creative. And this is across right. so many creatives that I know. That is exactly what they tell me. And they're afraid. So you're
0: comfortable in your discomfort
1: because you're afraid if you get more healthy or comfortable, you're going to lose what you believe is your key to inspiration.
0: Yes. And that is a way you can create from that state, but it's not sustainable. It is very supported by industry, like you can control people if they're working in their fear state very easily. So there's not a lot of discussion or thought leadership around how to actually bring people into the process that you're doing, which is creating from a love state, a relaxed state, a pleasure state. And that is, it turns out, not only as effective or more effective, but sustainable, pleasurable. You'll create more over time because you actually like it. Mm -hmm. So good job. You found the key to creativity. I see both sides. I see both sides. I've done
1: the thing where, like, when you're sad, you feel like, oh, man, I could write eight books of poetry from this pain. And I I feel that, too. Mm -hmm. But what I've learned is that if I can give myself environments, for me, new stimuli is a big part of the equation, is that I just find that, like, it's a very generative process. Yeah. Um, and I think it's been my key to be like this is where how creativity can live. So I, I love hearing Young's yes. version because I came to my own sort of conclusion in, well done. A, in a similar way. <laughs> well um, done. And that actually
0: that's what I built my whole studio around. So yes. the studio um, is called Sandmirror Studio. It is taken from a Jungian psychologist who was... Um, she was working with kids and she realized like kids don't have a lot of verbal skills. And so she developed this system that involves a sandbox a library of little figurines and toys that she uses as archetypes and symbols, and they're kind of all on the wall. And it's this very physical experience where you go, there's like relaxing music, and you go and you have the thing, you create a block that you're bringing into the studio, and there's a guided process with me, the way I use it to pick the symbols and archetypes so you can kind of like very gently, effectively, efficiently download what your block is or what your idea is and see it in front of you, um, and then you can work with it.
1: I know for people watching and listening, I too when I first heard this was intrigued but also skeptical because I think all of us should have a healthy level of skepticism. But I want to say that I have done Kate's process and it's fascinating. It's fascinating. Like you come in with a question or I mean you can explain it better than me, but you come in with some sort of I guess inquiry,
0: yeah. is that the right way to put it? Yeah, yeah. Something, and it helps if you're desperate. Like, crisis. <laughs> it helps if either you're passionate or desperate. Like, that's sort of the, a really good fuel to use. I
1: think also I'm going to say it helps if you're extremely open.
0: Yes, it does. It, it does. I think
1: you can be skeptical and still be open. Yeah. And I think you have to sort of surrender to the process. But then once you're there, you ask this inquiry, and then you just sort of run on intuition, which for me is the a, a massive intelligence that is underrated in our culture. And then once you're running on the intuition at the end, you don't necessarily have to know what everything means right at the time, but you will get some answers. And then over time, more answers reveal themselves. But what I think for me, what was the the real sort of, I guess, cementing factor was that creativity starts pre-verbally.
0: Yes. Oh, my God. Yes. So can you
1: can you run us through that? Because that's something I didn't know, which yes. is that we're oftentimes in the process of writing or creating, thinking that we, we just – and it's pre-verbal. We may not actually have the words for a while. And I find this now when I write, which is – I often now will just say I do not have the words right now and it takes me a while to sort of formulate the feeling or the intention I'm trying to convey.
0: Yes. This was so fascinating to me as well. And I have experienced this um, many times where you're in a group situation and there's like a brainstorm going on, right? Everyone's brainstorming ideas. There's a whiteboard. Somebody's writing stuff. And you're just supposed to like shout out your best idea. And often what happens is people just shout out garbage and you're just like… <laughs> or you're running off like the,
1: the signifier before you where you're like, this made me think of this and it has nothing to do with anything. But yes. But it's just like in the frequency like… Or it's of like, redundant.
0: You're actually not creating anything. You're just saying things that you heard from somewhere kind of and remixing them. You know, it's it's not creative at all. And one of the things we know now is that inspiration and intuition happens before our brains form words. And so often when we're having a creative block, what's happening is we're trying to force the inspiration into words too soon. And there's like a short circuit in the brain where the brain hasn't figured out how does this inspiration, which usually comes in through a symbol, that's why we dream in pictures, you know, it comes through in through the psyche. And it, ha- it goes through a processing phase where it then becomes more defined to the point where then you can put it into words. And sometimes that takes seconds, minutes, weeks, years. You know, that process is… it depends on what the idea is. But if we force it into a sentence to be spoken immediately or too soon, it breaks off from the original inspiration and you're actually mm-hmm. not stating it at all. So it's really… Um, that's why I I… I've really gravitated toward this process because sand play is not verbal. You're not speaking. You're actually using images to put together a sense of what is happening in your psyche. And then after it's finished you start speaking about it and that graduates the idea from the left side of your brain to the… or from the right side of your brain to the left side of the brain. Wild. I know. I just… I, it, it it's silly we don't all know this because it's… it just makes… Ideation so much more effective.
1: <laughs> well, so, I mean, I think it's ho- I think the brain is so complex, and so we learn about different components of it, right? But these things that then apply specifically to our careers or our jobs, we may not have the information. And I think that was very valuable to me to be like, oh, if this starts preverbally, I don't have to rush. Yeah. The process. I can allow it to simmer and not. Yeah. Speak of it until I have more clarity.
0: I cannot tell you how interesting it has been to observe how people's brain works brain work in my studio. I, I have this theory that everybody has their own personal genius.
1: Oh, for sure. I, I just, 100% believe that. That's like one of my biggest things is that everyone has their own personal genius and they just have to have figure out what it is. Yeah. And then if you find that, then like life becomes flow. Yes. Work is like money is just a byproduct of living in your genius.
0: Yes. That's well said. Yeah, that's exactly right. I have observed how different people's creativity works. And it's almost geometric. You can almost define the way a lot of people work geometrically. Like I had one person who was having panic attacks every time he sat down to write something. So he came in and we worked on his stuff and what he discovered was his actual creative process requires chaos to start. He goes from chaos to order. And so his panic attacks were actually creating so much chaos in his life because it got, everything got so jammed up. And that's when he could start to create, but he didn't know that, and so he went into a panic state about it. Now that he knows that, he just allows chaos to happen and he feels fine and then he can create properly.
1: Well, I think it's also we're taught… So we're taught that we like when we write, for example, it should be linear. Right. And I'm going through this process now, very, 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 very nascent stages of trying to write a book. And Mm. in this process, I was like, well, I'm not a linear writer and I'm working with a coach. And she's like, well, maybe the book isn't linear. And I was like, what? (laughs) Because my whole life I was told this is this way, and I was told by my family I'm not a great writer, blah, blah, blah. But my process is one that is disparate pieces that then I need to figure out how they come together. It's not a linear process by any means. Eventually, I figure out how it's cohesive, how it works, what the through line is, what the story is. And for the sake of maybe this book, maybe it's not going to be a linear story. But it was such a relief to be given permission to say it doesn't have to be maybe that's not what you're doing and you don't need to know yet and so we talked about structure and so we had to work through some pillars of ideas around structure and then like a month in, i said i'm abandoning structure for the moment i'm just going to write and then we can figure out what it is later i don't need to know right now and i don't really care right now i love it and that release of not having it to be this thing i think is such a such a gift but i think in our culture we love Frameworks. We love telling everyone they have to be one size fits all. This is the way you do things. And I think if we relinquish all of that, we can be our best creative selves. And so a lot of what you do is give people that permission to know that like their way is okay.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's not hard. It's not hard. I work in spirals, I recently discovered. I actually, now when I do my to do list for every day, I write what I need to do on little pieces of paper and then They arrange themselves in a spiral on the floor. There's actually two spirals. One goes this way and one goes this way. And then I can tell what I need to do in what order based on the spirals. It's so interesting. It it is so interesting because I used to… I used to be like, why do I start one thing and then… I don't finish it but I'll come back around to it in like a week or a month. And so I'm, I'm, I work on one thing but I work on it incrementally and I'm like, oh, it's because I work on one thing but then I work on all the things and I go around in a, a complete circle because I'm doing it all at one time. Even though the appearances, I don't finish anything. I actually do finish everything. I just finish everything at once.
1: Mm. So my schedule, the way I do it is I put in my phone, I have like my to-do list is in my schedule. And so as it's completed, it gets deleted off the schedule. And Ooh, if it's not that's done, satisfying. it gets put to the next day.
0: Oh, you're a rollover. I'm a rollover.
1: <laughs> a lot gets done, but there's some like definite whatever like, gives you a a high. Get a new, new driver's thing. license photo is a big rollover. Months and months and months. <laughs> I do it. Months and months of rollover. But the point is that's how I work. But everyone has like their little system of yeah. methodology that works for them, and that's one of the things like you can never judge. As long as things are getting done, who cares? But I think that you know in the corporate environment, for example, right? Like that's not as accepted, and obviously some things are more prioritized. But everyone has a different process and I think as long as it's done in a reasonable time frame, yeah, you know, we have to accept that people's flows look different.
0: I think there's a crazy amount of untapped potential because we're forcing people to work in a certain way. I mean, imagine if we had a system where people could discover how they worked mm-hmm. and then be supported in working that way. I mean, imagine the efficiency, if everyone was working inside their creative genius and they understood how it worked, like if they had the map to their own system.
1: Right. This was always my issue in corporate America was that I tend to be someone who can do an immense amount of work in a short amount of time. And so I was always done every day at work before everyone else. And I'd just be like, what else can I do? I'm waiting around, waiting around, waiting around. And it wasn't built for me. Then an eight hour day is not built for me because I can like go do these massive spurts of, of huge amounts of work. And so i just was wasting a lot of brain space and i felt like this was just like not the eight hour day was not constructed for me and it wasn't until i became an entrepreneur and structured my days the way that i wanted to and had my hands in all different pots that all of a sudden i was like oh i'm living the way i'm supposed to be living because i'm not meant to be doing one job eight hours a day i'm a multi-hyphenate who does multiple things and has the capacity for that but i also structure my day that i sort of work in chunks across each cylinder and so I think that for me was a big awakening. When you know, I mean, well, not. I mean, it was a forced awakening when I kept getting, you know, quitting or fired. Uh, that this wasn't this <laughs> wasn't for me. But the point was, it was it was a learning for me that I was just like, oh, I don't work like everybody else.
0: Yeah. When when you do, you find you're more efficient when you're working in more categories. Like, do they inform yes. each other?
1: They inform. they were all related. But I think for me. I appreciate diversification of inputs. Yeah. so a big part of what I do, right, for um, you know what anything that I do, like writing, whatever speaking, it's a lot of reading. I read a lot and I learn a lot to become more edified in different categories and then be a better orator or be a better um, just even like you know advisor to companies, any of those things. But I find that without the input of books. I do myself a disservice in my categories, mm. and I read like a book a week now. So I'm like, mm. that's so. Impressive. And I used to do that as a kid, but then through my 20s with work, I didn't have time, right? Yeah. And so once I reclaimed my time, it just
0: came back. Yeah, that's great. You've solved a lot of creative problems, like. <laughs> Not by, not by, by sheer I'm force. Excited for this book. It wasn't. It wasn't. It
1: wasn't like I solved them. Of like, oh, it's like no. Like the universe hit me and hit me and hit me, and then I was like, you're
0: gonna come. Okay. To
1: so if you look at every sort of part of your career, there's a through line and I'm gonna give you what my interpretation of the line is. And then you can tell me what your interpretation <laughs> okay. of the line is. Yes. Yeah. But it's storytelling. For me, I see in everything that you've done, there's storytelling is an important pillar. Before I ask my question. What do you think your through line is?
0: Story I when people ask me I say storytelling. <laughs> Good
1: for me. Yes. Yes.
0: Sick. Like I kind of I don't I don't mind whatever if it's acting, if it's helping somebody else tell a story, it's, I don't I don't mind the role. I really think stories are so important.
1: They are. And before I get to my question, what I wanna say is actually that you're so what's so amazing about Kate is your ability. To have so much joy for helping other people's other people discover. Mm. Like you have such a zest and curiosity for life that you bring to your work in such a special way, which is like the process of your work is very joyful to you and people feel that. But I think the the joy you you just like derive the fun. me, like, wow! I helped this person figure out this thing. I do love
0: it. I do love it,
1: (laughs) and it's it's very special. But I think that's when you're living in your genius is when you feel that joy for the impact you create, but also in the process of what you're doing.
0: Thank you. Yes. So I just wanted to mention that because I love that about you. Thank you.
1: But why is storytelling so important to you?
0: I think storytelling is a critical tool for evolution. Mm. I think. Especially for evolving consciously, if the parts of us that have choice about how to evolve and how to participate and how we want to evolve our humanity. Stories are really important. We need to be told stories about who we are, about what we're doing, about what the possibilities are. I think it's critical. So that's why. That's why. I think we need the mirror to see who we are so we can know who we want to be.
1: Storytelling is such a big part, I think, of a creative journey or even a business journey. I think that, you know, you have to be able to tell what your product is and tell the story correctly so people can understand it and learn from it. I think you're 100% right. I think communication and storytelling is what connects and also what gets us to think and what gets us to move forward.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: What have been some of the coolest things that you've witnessed that have happened through your studio?
0: One of the coolest things that happens is that people realize they have a story and that their soul wants to tell it. And so they don't know
1: necessarily when they come in.
0: A lot of times people think they're writing a script, but it is tying them up in knots because their soul is trying to speak it in a certain way and they have resistance to it or they can't hear their intuition because there's too much pressure from the outside.
1: Or surrender to the story. When yes. I When I was building my company, which is an entertainment tech company, we worked with a lot of screenwriters, and a lot of screenwriters were writing the thing that they thought the industry would want.
0: Yes. And they would… It's a lot of gaslighting. A
1: lot of what they would ask <laughs> me was like, well, what do you think I should write? Like, what do you think is it selling in this market? And I was like, you need to write the thing that your heart's telling you to write that you don't care if it sells or not because you need to write it
0: because that is
1: the thing that always sells. Right. It's not the thing that you're writing to sell. It's a thing that you need to write.
0: Yeah. That is, I would say, I sort of have this visual that if we're collective consciousness, if we're all related in a way that we can't totally feel, each of us has a seat in that consciousness and that seat has the fire of inspiration behind it. So that's sort of where your soul lives, right? That's Your soul is like feeling the world and the experience we're in in a certain way and if you are recognizing what that fire is, what lights you on fire, that is literally your conduit to everybody else, to the universality of everybody else. So yeah.
1: So oftentimes people come to your studio, you're helping them connect with that fire.
0: Yeah, exactly. And and telling them that they're not crazy. <laughs> and helping Which is them important. see that. Yeah. And and then helping the story come out because a lot of times what happens is the story is more sophisticated than the person's personal evolution. So a story will come forward and the person doesn't know how to, the, like hasn't Whoa. heard this kind of story before, doesn't understand it because it's beyond their imagination. And so part of my job is to let the story evolve the person. It's like the, the person's writing the story, but the story is also writing the person. Whoa. Yeah. That happens a lot, especially for very creative people who are reaching, you know, f- far boundaries, like challenging themselves to reach far boundaries. But it puts you in a crisis. Like if you have an ache to tell a story that has to be told, but you don't know how to – like you're too stupid for your own story <laughs>
1: almost. I mean, I feel that way writing a book. So yes. I can tell you off the time. i my like, oh, that's good the, God. Yes. Uh, that's but, I stopped, it, but I stopped judging myself. And I think that was a big part of it, which is like relinquish the judgment and just –
0: That's per, That's the That's the best state. That's the highly creative state because you are creating yourself. You are the story. You but become the story as you're writing what's it.
1: helpful, and this is probably what you do for these people as well, is – support them enough that they can do that. Because I think the greatest teachers or the greatest mentors are the people that they don't tell you, they don't like blow smoke up your butt, right? Like they're, they're being honest, but they tell you, oh, like my reminding teachers that this is good. This this is good. This is where we can expand upon it. But the voice and the the narrative, I'm into it. Yeah. And that for me was very helpful to be like, okay, so it's not like complete trash. Right. right. So I'm like, I don't know, it could be trash. I've never done this yeah. before. Um yeah. I do the same thing. I take voice lessons, same thing, and I have
0: <laughs> let's see.
1: One day maybe I'll be a singer. Not today, not today. Not today. We're getting better, we're getting oh, better.
0: Yeah, we got a book, we got a performance you know coming. I mean? This is you very get, exciting. You
1: just gotta follow the joy. <laughs> so he always says form follows function. So don't worry about just form learn follows function. So like learn the structure and rules of your throat and how it works in mm. your voice. And then you can worry about style. Let's just understand Mm. the mechanics. Mm -hmm. And we're starting with the mechanics. And for someone that's not a singer, I don't know the mechanics. So I'm Mm -hmm. learning and you can see how your voice evolves with the mechanics. Mm -hmm. And it's also been helpful to be like me coming in and being like, I'm not Whitney Houston. Mm -hmm. I'll never be Whitney Houston. I'm doing this for joy and process. But that being said, in the process, I'm realizing maybe I'm not as bad as I thought I was. Mm. But with the right support and the right guidance and teacher, I found that I'm able to relax into that state and just be process-oriented. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, yeah. There's… um.
1: It can be non-linear. We've talked about this. We can start somewhere and connect it back.
0: No, because you asked me about like the coolest things yeah. that happen in my studio. Because there's an, there's an element also of, um, and sort of what you're referring to is like there's a a line between your work and your, your personal development. A lot of times the stories that we're telling ourselves our personal like what what happened to me <laughs> what happened to me and what does it mean how how did that create meaning in my life and how did it create form in my life i had this family come in who had survived a crime one of somebody close to their family had driven one of their family members to suicide and then sort of taken over his <sighs> empire a lot of it was you know, done covertly so they didn't understand what had happened to them and they didn't understand who they were as a family. Mm -hmm. And so we started to work on their actual personal story and it uncovered all these… It was sort of like a great reveal of all these players around them who had been exploiting them for years. They realized there was a huge narcissism wound within their own family. They started to just put pieces together about who they were and why the world was responding to them as it was. And once they had all the pieces, they had a huge lawsuit. (laughs) And we wrote a huge document and gave it to lawyers and like now they're going after this criminal who destroyed their family. So like stories are potent. (laughs) Stories are potent.
1: Also understanding the story and understanding yourself. Yeah. Wow. So that's a vi- that's a departure from sort of what you thought I think the studio yes. would be about. Yes. And how satisfying.
0: Yes. I would say the studio has catered to creatives, entrepreneurs who are facing project blocks or personal or work transformations, and then anyone who is going through some kind of personal evolution and is in a state of confusion or, you know, needs support. It's been such an adventure. <laughs> <laughs> so cool. Yeah.
1: So one of the things I deeply appreciate about you is your willingness to challenge convention and to do things your own way and not worry about you know what the feedback looks like. And you've been able to build a studio that financially supports you. That's your own methodology that people have found. And that's a very hard thing to do, a, to build a business from scratch, to have the faith that people will find it and it will work. And for you, I think it's been also a lot of like word of mouth, right? Yeah, yeah, which is amazing because like the product works, people speak about it, and it builds your business. But how how do you think you are so comfortable with challenging convention?
0: Oh, I wouldn't challenge convention if I thought it worked. <laughs> I'm not re- I'm not trying to be an outlier. I just really like efficiency. <laughs> I would do it if I thought it worked. But yeah, I I, I really I, I, my mind really analyzes systems and. If it doesn't work, it just makes me – I'm like, this could be improved upon so Mm -hmm. easily. So (laughs) there's so many times that I wish I could tolerate convention a lot more than I do because I'm like, do I have to invent everything from scratch? Like everything? But yeah, that is how my life turned out. (laughs) But
1: you're also open to like tinkering. Like I know even with the pay model of your company, you've tried different things. And I think it's so cool to be so open to being like, let's just see. Yeah, and not have the fear attached to, especially when it comes to like money, right? Like, not have the fear attached to. Well, let me play with this, and maybe it won't work, or maybe it will work. Most people would be like, you know, there is a sense of security around you know money, and so can you talk about like sort of the process of being like, I'm gonna try, try, and have oh
0: faith? man, yeah, I'm in this. As you know, I'm in this. I'm doing this huge experiment about with my own personal the economy of my business, and. This all came about because I started to question what people were paying me for. Because if you're in the business of personal evolution or or, or, or breakthrough, professional breakthrough, what we're really talking about is the expansion of your being. So how how do you? Quantify that? Yeah, how do you do that? And then I thought, okay, well, maybe they're paying me for my time. But then I'm like, well, my time is my time on Earth. That's my existence. Like, what are we gonna put on that? Like a billion dollars a minute for eternity? Like for starters? You know? Like there's oh no God. there's no there's no price. So I was like, what are people paying me for? Like how am I gonna price this? And then some people come to me for little tiny things and some are some are big breakthroughs, some are small breakthroughs. So so how do you yeah, how do you quantify? So <laughs> I developed a system where the, what you pay me is based on two things, emotion and intensity. <laughs> and what I figured out was my ideal client is open and willing and has a sense of adventure. That's a certain emotional field, right? And I also started to notice that when you pay for things, there is an emotion behind it. If you pay too much for something, it feels like a burden. You're like, it feels bad. And if you pay too little, it feels apathetic.
1: We also sometimes a question too the things that are most fundamental for ourselves, whether it's like therapy or healers, or like whatever people use, there's always a, well, that's so much money.
0: Oh, that's so yeah. expensive. Yes.
1: And it's like, for example, like there's a healer I know who charges like $120 for like 20 minutes. But she says, like, you'll see results in three to five sessions at her job, as most great practitioners are. Is that, like, I'm going to cook for you and then – or, like, you know, teach you how to cook and then I, you're not going to need me. That's the goal, right? Great practitioners are, like, it's not – we're not building a 10-year relationship because if I do my job right,
0: you're yeah. not a client
1: anymore. And so I was, like, okay, 500 bucks to change your life is how you have to look at it. But in the minute, you're, like, 120 bucks for 20 minutes? Right. That feels insane. Right. And then it's, like, but that's the 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 – but we feel resistance towards, honestly, is I think the value of sometimes the things that are most fundamentally changing us, we feel like, well, oh, that feels very expensive. But it's yeah. like the best money, the best money you can spend.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's very tricky and it's very personal to people. People have all sorts of money issues around it. So finally, I. this is what I do now, I call this the kaleidoscope algorithm because we're sort of we're sort of like, you would look through a kaleidoscope and if you tick it one way, it changes the whole field. And if you tick it the another way, it changes the whole field. So we want to like find the right field that feels good to both people. We want openness, willingness, and then I also want to trust you. Like that's actually really important for my work because we can go deeper, farther, quicker if you trust me. So I thought, why not use the money? You can't pay me for my time and or your breakthrough. Why not use the money as a creative tool? So here's what I do, <laughs> I… people come in, we have… or they call and have we have a, a, an intro conversation and they, and we talk about what they want to do and I say, okay, now we're going to price your session. Each session has its own price, we're going to find the number for this session. And I say, I want you to write down a number that feels good, where you feel relaxed in your body, you feel open and willing to come through, don't tell me what it is, just write it down. And I have them do like one that's really high, one that's really low so they find the right number. And then I sort of tune into my emotions about do I want to work with this person? Am I right, the right helper for this person? Do I have any images coming to me about what the experience of this person working with this person would be? And we have a little bit of a conversation. Like sometimes I'll be like, I feel like I feel like there's a sense of betrayal <laughs> for some reason. Like can you speak? To, I don't know what your number is, but I just feel it feels bad to me. And they're like, oh. I just I felt it was too low, and so I I made it you know a hundred bucks higher, and so I, I'm confused about it. I'm like, okay, okay, okay. So if we start this session on a sense of your betrayal, that is going to be the fuel for our session, and I don't want I I don't want to deal with that. <laughs> yeah. So I want I need you to come in with clean emotions. So like find the number that feels good. You can adjust it at the end of the session. Don't worry about it. Just start with what feels good. They write it down. I agree. I don't know what the number is, I just agree to the emotion and then I have them adjust it if they're, they want their experience to be very intense or less intense just depending on what the issue is. So we find the number, I agree to the number, I don't know what it is, we do the session. At the end of the session they have an opportunity to adjust it higher or lower to keep it in integrity with what happened and then they just pay it. So, <laughs> so. A lot of people thought this was like such an insane way to set up a business and I'm still experimenting with it. Like the big question is, is this sustainable?
1: I just think it's interesting that you're willing to put your livelihood like up to risk. I think it's a very interesting, brave thing to do to say, okay, I'm not going to charge rates that I know is going to, you know, pay my bills every month. I'm going to see if this thing works. Yeah. And I think just in the process of experimentation and being an entrepreneur and an innovator, I find it very fascinating.
0: It's so fascinating. And I've gotten paid. For the same amount of session, I've gotten paid $1,500 and $100. Yeah, I had someone who had a number and she's like, I don't know what the number is, but I want this thing done so badly, I'll give you $500,000. Where would that ever happen? Yeah, totally. So it's like… We never, we're so scared to experiment. We don't think about like the benefits of what, totally. like, if you know, or how
1: it evens out. Cause, like, some people have more money, some people have less money, and their understanding of money is different too. Cause people yes. that have more money, they don't think of $700 as a lot of money, but someone who has less money might, right? Yes. So, I think that's an interesting thing. But I think this also hinges upon the fact that you are very intuitive and trust your intuition. And so, how did you get to a place of trusting yourself that deeply?
0: I just thought, I'm building a business that is intuition based. What am I? What have we been doing here? Yeah. Like, do I? If I'm asking people to trust me, I have to trust myself that. Like, I have to, yeah, I have to model it. It's hard though. It is so. No, it's, 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 I agree. It's edgy, but um, it creates you can feel the edge in the when people write down their numbers and they're like oh my god like they feel me in it with them you know what i mean like if i'm putting myself on the line for what their process needs to transform them then it's like it's like rocket fuel
1: but entrepreneurship is all about edges and being willing to face those edges and so yeah. i think like you're embodying that not only for the process for your people but like also for yourself as a business owner and leader
0: yeah and so many Cool models have gone out of it, like I have um, team members who each – they started out paying me each individually, but they all know each other. And so there started to be this shape between all of them and their individual work. And I changed the payment model to do cycles. And also within this pod, it's like without even knowing it, one of them pays higher, one of them pays lower. Like they they counterbalance Each, each other? Yeah. yeah. So there are all sorts of financial models. That are suddenly become available that do sustain me because they're working with a greater collective, and I'm not just expecting the client in front of me to pay my bills. Right, I'm looking at the whole collective.
1: Well, innovation and entrepreneurship is about iteration and it is about experimentation, and so I think that like it's just I just think it's very cool, and I wanted people. Thank to you. Learn I could also
0: it. be homeless. Like so. it's it's a it's an experimentation phase, but
1: it's been going on for a long enough that I think I think it's yeah. interesting, and I think it's important for people to think about as they're building things to not just do the linear or what they think works. There's like different ways of building financial models. And we tried a different one in my business that looked more like a venture capital portfolio. That was hard for people to understand from like a SaaS business. But I think that there's all these other things available to us if we're willing to just like think differently. Yeah. Um, We're going to jump into our rapid fire five questions. Oh, God, Okay. So just um, all you have to do is just speak from your intuition. You'll be fine. (laughs) What would you tell your 20-year-old self?
0: I am so sorry, it's going to be really hard for another 20 years. <laughs> I
1: think that is the um, most pessimistic answer I've ever gotten.
0: I am heartbroken for my 20-year-old self. It was rough times. Oh. I couldn't wait to be 40. When I was 20, I was like, when I'm 40, it'll be so much better. And it was. Intuition and now I'm again. like, 60 is going to be so good. And then I'm like, but 80, oh 80 God. is going to be awesome. It <laughs> will Yeah. That's
1: when you love life, it's all awesome. Yeah. <laughs> what is the last book you read?
0: Morphic Resonance by Rudolf Sheldrake.
1: Wow. Okay, that is one I will look up later. (laughs) What are you struggling with right now?
0: My life doesn't feel like a struggle. That's amazing. Yeah. You're in flow. It feels integrated.
1: I think that's beautiful. You know what, we'll take the moment of bliss. Okay. We're not struggling in this moment. Okay. I could invent something about it. Like, no, oh. no, chef's kiss to that. You, <laughs> that is a moment because
0: we know you, I can't fit in these pants. Maybe that's- <laughs> We know you eventually
1: will struggle again. So when we're riding the high and we're not struggling, we're gonna okay. take it because the struggle is inevitable. So okay. we'll take the moment.
0: I literally was like, how do I expand but also contract? Like how do I expand in my life but contract my body? That's what I was thinking on the car over today. I'm like, there's gotta be a way. Anyway, just I'm working on I'm struggling with we're that.
1: patriarchal society talking to women, oh. but you're fine. Mm. What is bringing you joy right now?
0: Everything. (laughs) The possibility of my work. I love that. Yeah, I'm in love with it.
1: And what is the best piece of advice you've ever received?
0: Sometimes you're so far into a black hole that it's impossible to pull yourself out and you just have to go all the way through the center and dissolve yourself until you come out the other side. That's right, the only way is through.
1: Spending time with you in conversation is like so fun. It's so fun for I'm me. So thank, so thank you so much. Thank you so much for this whole this event. This was awesome. And I can't wait for everyone to, to get meet you.
0: Thank you so much. <laughs> Yay.
1: <laughs> so many good takeaways here with Kate today. This one I really loved. It really allowed me to understand the why behind some of my natural conclusions. So, our brain can be aligned for inspiration and creativity in a fear or a love state. And so much of what we see in our culture is pushing creativity through the fear state, getting us to a stress level to induce creativity under deadlines. And that is a recipe for burnout over time, where a love state, this idea of calm, peace, love, and allowing creativity to birth that way, is the much more generative place to be. And that is what Kate helped people tap into in her work. But I think knowing the biological reason behind inspiration and creativity was incredibly helpful to me. Creativity starts pre-verbally. Also something I did not know that so much when we're trying to rush this process of creativity, we hinder the actual process because you have to allow the pre-verbal thoughts to form so that they can become verbal. Forcing them to become verbal before they're ready will only inhibit the kernel of the idea. Your creativity process is unique to you. As you heard Kate and I discuss, hers is a spiral, mine is a rollover. And this was really cool because I think that we often try to put people in a one-size-fits-all, a box around their processes, and the more individualized we can understand how we all work is what's going to benefit the collective. The most. I'm going to redo that line. Your creativity process is unique to you. As you heard on this episode, Kate's is a spiral, mine is a rollover. And I think this is so awesome because the more that we understand how our brain works and how our unique creativity process works, the more we can let it do what it's going to do so we can create the thing that will benefit the collective the most. Kate is a leading example of the tinkering and the iteration and the experimentation. Embodying that in the work that she does is incredibly brave, but I think it's a note to all of us that we should not be afraid of iterations, of little experiments to help us make sure that we're in alignment with our work in the best way possible. And the last one is go to the center and dissolve yourself. I love this one. Go to the center and dissolve yourself. This podcast is one of the most nourishing things that I do with my time. And it could not be possible without a select few people who really have put their time and energy to make this podcast live. So thank you Wine Design, South by Southwest Innovators Fund, Lenny Skolnick, and Young Scorp Social. You guys really are the unsung heroes of this podcast, the little pod that could. I thank you so, so much and can't wait to hear all of your feedback on this amazing season.